you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Then Yehu assembled all the people and said to them, Ahab served Baal a little, but Jahab will serve him much. Now therefore call to me all the prophets of Baal, all his worshippers and all his priests. Let none be missing, for I have a great sacrifice to offer to Baal. Whoever is missing shall not live. But Jehu did it with cunning in order to destroy the worshippers of Baal. And Jehu ordered, Sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel, and all the worshippers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. He said to him who was in charge of the wardrobe, Bring out the vestments for all the worshippers of Baal. So they brought out the vestments for them. Then Jehu went into the house of Baal with Jehonadab, the son of Rechab, and he said to the worshippers of Baal, Search and see that there is no servant of the Lord among you here, but only the worshippers of Baal. Then they went in to offer sacrifices and burnt offerings. Now Jehu had stationed 80 men outside and said, The man who allows any of those whom I give into your hands to escape shall forfeit his life. So as soon as he had made an end of offering the burnt offering, Jehu said to the guards and to the officers, Go in and strike them down. Let not a man escape. So when they put them to the sword, the guard and the officers cast them out, went into the inner room of the house of Baal, and they brought out the pillar that was in the house of Baal and burnt it. And they demolished the pillar of Baal and demolished the house of Baal and made it a latrine to this day. Thus Jehu wiped out Baal from Israel. But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he had made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And the Lord said to Jehu, Because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes, and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he had made Israel to sin. In those days, the Lord began to cut off parts of Israel. Hazael defeated them throughout the territory of Israel, from the Jordan eastward, all the land of Gilead, the Gadites, and the Reubenites, and the Manassites, from Aroah, which is by the valley of the Arnon, that is, Gilead and Bashan. Now the rest of the acts of Jehu and all that he did and all his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehu slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria. And Jehoahaz, his son, reigned in his place. The time that Jehu reigned over Israel in Samaria was 28 years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much, Chris. Well, good morning, City on a Hill. So good to see you. Big shout out to our brothers and sisters in Hughesdale. Can't wait to be with you next week. Uh, We're on a streak this morning. Two weeks in a row. I can get used to this. It's good to spend time with each other. Uh, 
If we haven't had the chance to meet before, my name's Nick. I get the joy of being the lead pastor here of uh, this church that God is building. Uh, And we exist to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And part of that is that uh, we want to engage with the Bible each and every week and throughout the week. And sometimes engaging with the Bible brings us to very interesting texts and passages like we have today. And so we're going to dive into this passage uh, as we do. I'd love for you to pray with me to begin. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you so much for this opportunity to hear from you. Uh, Lord, we believe when the Bible is read, we hear you speak. And so would you come and speak to us? And would you use your word as a vessel to come and cut us to the heart and cut out what isn't of you and start conforming us into your image? Jesus, we pray that you would be big and that we would see you as big and as bold and as beautiful as you really are. And so come now and fill us with your Holy Spirit so we might see you. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, sometimes uh, I like to begin a sermon with a bit of a light touch, colourful story, humorous personal family anecdote, something like that. We're going to start a little differently today. I'd love you to bring to mind perhaps one of the most clearest injustices that you can think of. Cast to your memory, to bring to your mind one of the things that riles you up the most and your sense of injustice. Maybe as I ask you to do that, you, you think about something historical, something big and global and well-known, something perhaps like, like the Holocaust or some other genocide. Maybe your mind goes to current events. Maybe you're thinking of the, the Uyghurs in, in China. Maybe we think about the unborn in our own state. Or maybe something more personal is triggered in you. Maybe start to think about uh, memories that you have where your blood pressure starts to rise. There are injustices, aren't there, in in life, in history, in the human experience that should rightly make our blood boil. The thermostat on everything inside of us start to go up and up and up. Perhaps perpetrators who are let off or, or never found, abuses of power, which are just kind of ignored because of the power. And every impulse in our hearts as we think about these things and and feel these things tangibly starts to yearn for justice. And as Christians, rightly, that, that, that yearning leads to us crying out to God, asking Him to come and do something, come and act, come and speak, come and judge. Well, last week we heard about some stories that if we were to go back a couple of thousand and a half years and we were asked that question of people about bringing to mind injustices, some of the stories we heard last week would have come to mind. Stories about Ahab and Jezebel who had stolen people's property and then killed the owners of those, that property so that they could take it for themselves. Leaders who had led the country God's chosen possession, God's people led them away into out-and-out idolatry. And they had resisted God's word at every turn. Well, today is the day where that yearning for God to speak, for God to act, and for God to judge, today's the day where he's going to do it. 
And so if you're not there already, turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 10, 2 Kings chapter 10, because we meet this man named Jehu. We're going to look at Jehu, his life, his leadership, and then we're going to double click in onto this theme of God's judgment, which is so clear in Jehu's life. And so let's first meet King Jehu, God's vessel of judgment. Jehu is a military commander in Israel. He is not related to Ahab, but he has been working for his son, King Joram, who uh, is currently king of Israel. And in breaking custom of it, just going kind of down through the lines, uh, Elisha, who is now on the scene as God's prophet, having uh, seceded Elijah, he sends one of his young kind of, uh, kind of apprentices uh, to the front lines of the battle, which is happening in a place called Ramoth-Gilead, sends him straight to the commander's tent there on the front lines, that he might have a word with Jehu. Because God has a new role for Jehu to play. And so the young man rocks up to the tent and says, Hey, uh, Commander Jehu, can, can I have a word? And as he pulls him aside, the young prophet finds him and says to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel, and you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants and prophets and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. And so this man Jehu here in in chapter 9, he is being called out and given a new mission, a mission that he can't really say no to. He, He has to do it. He is God's man, God's vessel of judgment upon Ahab and Jezebel. And it's fitting that God chose a commander, a military commander, because Jehu's life has been leading up to this point. He has been shaped into a particular weapon that he might be used by God to bring his justice. And Jehu does exactly that. He gets right to work. And there's a few stories in the lead up to our Bible passage, uh, which itself was intense, but there's a few other colourful and intense stories that lead up to it. And we're going to go through each one of those. And each one of them is kind of like the climactic moment in a movie, the the kind of starring Jason Bourne meets Kill Bill kind of collab here in the Bible. In fact, if you've seen uh, the movie Taken, has anybody seen the movie Taken? You might recognise a scene that happens in the life of Jehu. Here's a picture of Jehu uh, just behind me. He takes the call from one of God's prophets And if you've seen the movie, you know that that Liam Neeson is kind of copying Jehu. Because there's that famous conversation where Liam Neeson is on the phone in the movie and he's talking to some kidnappers who have stolen his daughter. And I won't do the accent, but he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you were looking for some ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills I've acquired over a very long career. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. Close scene. (laughs) Jehu gets on his horse, having put the phone down. And we have four stories that are not being told at City Kids right now. Because Jehu, on his horse, heads towards the current kings. The kings of Israel and Judah have, have combined... And having kind of, they're nursing their wounds at the moment in the summer residence of the king in Jezreel. And Jehu gallops his way towards the king of Israel and, and 
Judah here, and as he, they're seen on the horizon, the guards in the palace see that Jehu's coming, and the king's, you know, hey guys, go check out. It's, it's, we know it's Jehu. We trust him, but, but check out if he's, he's coming in peace. And to get an indication of where Jehu's at, he essentially says to these guards, shut up and get in line. And he keeps on galloping toward the palace. Finally, the kings themselves have to come out to meet him. And as soon as they see the look on Jehu's face, they turn and start galloping the other way. They retreat. And as they're retreating, the Bible tells us that Jehu kind of pulls out the bow and arrow, lines it up to King Joram. Arrow straight to the heart. After killing the king of Judah, Ahaziah, Jehu then orders that Joram's body be dumped on the property of Naboth, who we met last week, the man who had his property stolen by Ahab and Jezebel. That's the first. Then it goes on, Jehu then, the next person on his list is Jezebel herself. And she's residing in her own palace and uh, it sounds as though she's expecting Jehu to come because we enter into this story where uh, Jezebel is is, is kind of prettying herself up, hopefully hopefully, uh, to perhaps convince Jehu to, to, to be friendly. But as he's galloping in toward the palace, Jehu yells up to the second floor, calls to some of Jezebel's servants and command them to throw her out of the window. They throw her out of the window. The Bible tells us the blood spatters everywhere and Jehu tramples over her dead body before going into the palace to eat and drink at her own dinner table. After this, if that wasn't enough, Jehu then starts writing letters to all the sons of Ahab. There are 70 sons of Ahab. And he writes to their guardians because these sons are being educated all across Samaria. And after some back and forth with their guardians, Jehu asks them, would you sever their heads? And would you send all 70 of those heads to me in a basket, please? And the guardians do what they're asked. And 70 heads of the sons of Ahab are sent to Jehu. And then finally, we come to this story in our Bible reading. And by this point, God's judgment has already been severe, it has already been bloody, it has already been blunt, but it is not over. Because Jehu, as we heard, kind of pretends to want to hold the, the best ever church conference for Baal. And so he sends out invitations, he gets the branding down pat, he's got little cards on them, and he sends it to everybody. Hey, we're going to have an awesome worship conference to Baal. And you can imagine the excitement of every worshipper of Baal in that moment. Like, like this is the moment where all that they've been working for is kind of going to be shown to the nation of Israel, and they're going to forget about the God of Israel, because Baal is here to stay. And so they're all brought into the temple of Baal. We're told in in verse 20 of chapter 10, Jehu ordered, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal. So they proclaimed it. And Jehu sent throughout all Israel and all the worshippers of Baal came, so there was not a man left who did not come. And they entered the house of Baal, and the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. There's no density quotients here. This is all the space is filled up with worshippers of Baal. And Jehu goes through 
the, the place just to make sure that there is no one who is still faithfully serving the God of Israel, but only the worshippers of Baal. But as kind of the worship set to Baal is, is wrapping up, the burnt offerings are being cleaned up, we find out that actually Jehu has stationed his soldiers outside. And he sends those soldiers inside to go in, strike them down, let not a man escape. And all the worshippers of Baal are slaughtered. Verse 27 says it, And they demolished the pillar of Baal, and demolished the house of Baal, and made it a latrine to this day. And so these, these kind of details are added as if the author is enjoying this moment. The author wants us to know how satisfying it is that this has happened, that the house of Ahab and that the worship of Baal has been turned into a toilet. And so what would the Lord have to say to Jehu after this? What, what would the Lord say as he brought Jehu before him to talk about his behavior since he'd become king? Well, we find out in verse 30, the Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in carrying out what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab all according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. And so Jehu receives approval. Jehu receives commendation that this is what the Lord wanted. Bodies trampled, blood everywhere, slaughter. Well done, good and faithful servant. And so in this passage, we come face to face with the tension, a tension of God's judgment. Because on the one hand, don't we, we, we yearn for God's justice. We yearn for the Lord to do right, for judgment to come. And it's seemingly built into our DNA. And on the other hand, we're a little bit unsure whether we want God to be that just. Whether we want God to be just like this and to bring judgment that looks like this. And so let's double-click into that. Let's talk about God's judgment. Let's talk about the comfort of God's judgment. One of the clearest pictures in the Bible, uh, the Bible being God's revelation to us of who He is, is that He is a judge. In the famous self-description that He provides to Moses, uh, as He's just kind of forming His people there in Exodus, in Exodus 34, He says of Himself, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Amen, amen, amen but who will by no means clear the guilty. And when we think of God's judgment, when we look at these stories of Jehu executing that judgment, we need to recognize that this judgment is coming out of who God is. This judgment is coming out of God's character. And yet His wrath is not like our wrath. His anger is not like human anger. This isn't done on a whim. We're told here in this description that He is a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And so by the time we're catching up here, and perhaps you need to know this if you're just tuning in today, that this is coming after God has bided His time of his, giving His warnings of judgment 
And then biding even more time of those warnings of judgment turning into promises of judgment. And then biding even more time as those promises of judgment have eventually eventuated in the execution of that judgment against Ahab and Jezebel. And so God isn't acting here, nor does he ever in the Old Testament act out of a a spontaneous fit of unpredictable and bloody rage, like we or I might do. Now, God's judgment is patient. God's judgment is considered just and the right destruction of evil. And so we can't explain away this story, and there might be other stories in the Old Testament that come to mind. It's, it's kind of been, oh, this, you know, that's the Old Testament God. That's, that's kind of out of God's character. That's not the God I know. No, justice and judgment are very much a part of his character. And so to be embarrassed about God's judgment is actually, I hate to say it, but it's actually to be embarrassed about who God is and about the character of God. And so God's judgment is a good thing. And the author here, as he's kind of describing these stories, is is rejoicing in it. And we too can rejoice that, that God by no means will clear the guilty. It actually should add to our worship and add to our joy. It's a good thing because that God brings the justice that he promises means that evil will never win. It reassures us that those who mistreat people made in God's image are one day surely going to have to meet the God of that image. It comforts us that those who soil the name of God in their sin, those who try to take advantage or use the name of God to enrich themselves, those who mock the name of God in their pride, well, one day they're going to be brought low. And at the same time, it should empower us that those who are persecuted, those who are trodden upon, those who are mistreated and abused, maybe even some people in this room as we we brought to mind memories of injustices. Well, God knows. God hears. God sees. And God is a loving Heavenly Father who will not let His children be so treated. God will respond. And sometimes we can look out in our, our own justice system, can't we, in, in, in our society. And we can find it dissatisfying. Often the sentencing for a public crime, it just won't match the community's expectations. Maybe a rapist walks free, maybe someone well-connected just gets a, a very light touch slap on the wrist. I remember there was a bit of uh, public outrage when uh, the, the guy who was pulled over on the eastern freeway started laughing and taking videos of the police officers as they lay dying. And he was given just a couple more days in jail. And at that time, we, we have this, this yearning, this, this sense of, how can it be? This doesn't match. This isn't right. No, that feeling will never happen with God. That feeling will never be felt on the other side of eternity. And so that moment you brought to mind at the beginning, whether it was something famous and well-documented and well-known, or whether it was something private that nobody else knows. Well, there is somebody else who knows. God knows. And God has seen. And God will respond with a very perfectly appropriate level of justice. Now, in our 
modern day and in our particular city and neck of the woods, in our safety and prosperity, sometimes when we read stories like this, it's not that we focus in on God's judgment, but rather, no, we start to put God in the dock. And we start to judge Him and sit over above Him as if, if we ourselves are more moral than what's going on here in this story. Author Scott Saul says, To accept that God is a God of love but not a judge is a luxury that only the privileged and protected can enjoy. But see, to those who have had to endure, to those who have had to hold on in the midst of being on the receiving end of injustice, God's judgment is a balm for the soul. And we see that in the Scriptures themselves, right at the end, in the book of Revelation, as we have these visions of, of, of what's going on in heaven right now and what, what's, what's to come. We get to have a little of a, uh, be the fly on the wall of a conversation between those who have been martyred for their faith and the God of heaven and earth. And they're crying out to Him. And they're crying out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. And so God's judgment is something that can be celebrated, something to be rejoiced in, something to long for, and something that the vast majority of Christians throughout all history and the world brings great comfort. And maybe we need that comfort. Maybe we need to see that right now. Whatever our life has looked like. Some of us, our lives have looked relatively safe and secure. Others of us, our life has looked chaotic because of injustices that have happened to us. And so we need to know and we can be comforted by the fact that God knows, God cares, and God will bring justice. Now, Jehu was a vessel of God's good and right justice, and for that he was commended. But let's think now about you and me, because Jehu's got a particular position. He had a particular anointing for a particular role and task back then. So how does God's judgment actually affect your life and mine today? So let's turn to talk about uh, the direction of our judgment, because the Bible has a lot to say about judgment, and not just God's judgment, but also our own. We get this picture in this story that Jehu is a kind of brutish, brave, bold, brazen warrior. And he had the particular role of kind of bringing God's axe to bear on Ahab and Jezebel and cutting that off of the people of Israel. But there is more to the story. You might have picked it up in the Bible reading. We missed some key verses. In verse 29 and then 31 we read, But Jehu did not turn aside from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, that is, the golden calves that were in Bethel and in Dan. And then in verse 31, But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not turn from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin. And so evidently, Jehu is the kind of guy who was an absolute expert at searching out the injustices and the idolatries of Israel, and yet he failed to search out and see the sins that he was keeping Israel in himself. He could see all the problems that Ahab and Jezebel had set up and was completely blind to the problems he himself were perpetuating. 
Now, in many respects, you and I are just like Jehu. There's a bit of Jehu in all of us. Because how many, I won't, I won't ask for hands, but how many of us are experts at diagnosing the problems out there in society? Or the issues with our spouse? Or the sins of our parents? And yet, when the conversation turns to perhaps our contribution or our responsibility, suddenly we, 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 we have nothing to say. Perhaps we talk a very strong game on social media. Perhaps we can kind of discern and pick apart the logical fallacies that other people are making in their arguments against us. As we neatly kind of show and argue powerfully about if only those people over there would do this differently, society would be cured. Society would be fixed. And we can see the degradation of society, but we never use that sharp discernment to pick apart our own hearts and where we are. And so like Jehu, we can have that same disconnect. And we see that it's not just back then, and it's not just in the human heart today, but even at the time of Jesus, when He came onto the scene, we know that actually at that time as well, amongst the the Jews, amongst Israel, there was this great expectation and this great hope that another Jehu would come, that the Messiah would come, and that that Messiah would be just like this man, Jehu, who would come like a military warrior and free Israel from their Roman occupiers over there in Israel. And how did God choose to come? Well, Jesus comes as a baby. And in his ministry, Jesus didn't really challenge the ruling Romans of the day, but instead he saved his choicest words for the Jews themselves. Jesus called the religious establishment to repent. Jesus spent time fashioning together a whip, but then he didn't use the whip on Caesar. He didn't run around to the Romans and kind of try to whip them out of Israel. No, he went to the temple to whip those who were misusing and abusing the worship of God himself. And Jesus then turned to his fellow countrymen, to Fishermen, and then further to all people, calling them to be the ones who repent. Them to be the ones who believe. Them to be the ones who take up their cross and follow Him in His life of humble service. And there's a moment in Jesus' ministry, particularly the the famous Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus turns to His disciples and He turns to the Jews who would have been watching, all crowded around Him, and He essentially turns to us. And He says to them, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye and not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And so Jesus turns this, this idea of judgment which effectively is is talking about discernment, discerning true from false, good from evil, cutting off or or taking out what's not right. And he's not saying that we we should never judge, we should never discern. No, rather that we should judge ourselves first. That the priority is for us to cut off what's wrong in us first. And so he says, you know, if if you've got a hand that's causing you to sin, you should seriously consider cutting that off. 
If you've got an eye that, that's causing you to sin, you should, you should think about plucking that out. Such should be the ferocious intensity of cutting off what's wrong in us. And so just as God cleaned up the nation of Israel with Jehu, we're called to clean up our own house. Now to do so requires a gospel-centered self-awareness. That before we get on our horse and ride into Jezreel to kind of make Australia, make whatever we're trying to clean up great again, before we cut down what's wrong in society, then we should examine ourselves. And we should be eager to hunt down, make war, put to death any sin that remains in us. And to do so, God has given us a gospel-shaped sword, a sword of repentance, of confession, of faith, to cut off our junk, to put to death our sin and to walk in newness of life. And so think about that for a moment. How, how are you going at that priority? That if Jesus tells us that, that that should be our priority, looking first at the log that's protruding, we've got a forest coming out of our eye and instead we focus on the little grain of sand in someone else's. You know, there, there is a lot going out there in the world right now, isn't there? There is a lot calling for our, our attention, calling for our outrage, calling for us to, to denounce and discern how we should fix society and make it better. How are you going not at discerning all the problems out there, but discerning first the, the, the problems in here? Where does your priority lay? You know, maybe everyone else can see it. And I'm sure they can. But we need to make war on the logs coming out of our eyes before others. And when we do, doesn't this lead us to another tension? We have a, we have a new tension that arises. Because my natural bent is to be like Jehu. And want to announce what's going out there. And if only that would get with my agenda, all would be well. And so if that's my natural tendency, and then Jesus comes along and says, hey Nick, you, you, you've got a massive log coming out of your eye. And Jesus tells me to repent and to believe. I'm caught in a bind there, aren't I? Because I want justice. I want judgment. And yet if I really want justice and I really want judgment, it's going to have to land on me. It's going to have to come to me. And so let's turn to talk about the hope that we have. Jesus, the vessel judged by God. Because it is right and good that we sense the injustices around us. It is right and good that we yearn for God's justice to come. But it's right and good that we start by looking at our own hearts first. And when we do that, we realize that we are found wanting. And so Jehu was great at the first, but he completely ignored the latter. He resolved these injustices in Israel, but he made friends with evil in himself. But thankfully, like all these kings that we're looking at here in, in First and Second Kings, Jehu is not our Messiah, because there is a better way. In Jesus, we have someone who resolves all of these tensions that have been brought up. 
Because like Jehu, on the one hand, he was full of zeal and boldness. He, he tells us, zeal for your house consumes me. Talking about God's church. But unlike Jehu, he went one further. Not just cleaning house, but also paying for the dirt. The Bible tells us of Jesus in the book of Isaiah, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know, there are a lot of stories in the Old Testament where there's a lot of blood, there's a lot of wounding, there's a lot of piercing and crushing, and we've looked at one of those today. On the cross, we see another one of those. This text itself talks about piercing, crushing, chastisement, wounds, a lot of blood and guts and gore. And yet, all those stories were set up to show us the cost that Jesus himself would bear for us. You see, on the cross, we see that mercy and the graciousness and the, the, the slow to anger and the abounding in steadfast love of God, but at the same time, who will by no means clear the guilty. And those two things come together, which in our life and in our world seem so irreconcilable. Jesus comes to be the guilty, and to bear God's judgment so that you and I could go free. And so justice is served, and yet the penalty lands not on us who deserve it, but on the one who didn't deserve it, so that we could get what we don't deserve. And all those yearnings within us, for justice, for evil to be put away, for the possibility of mercy, they finally become real in Jesus. And so we can be true to what we see in ourselves when we have the guts to go there, that we need to repent and believe. And we can do that because we know that when we do, Jesus has already taken our place. Jesus has already borne our punishment. He has taken on our guilt. And so we can receive mercy today. We can receive mercy. And that's the offer that goes out to all of us. That when we have a moment of introspection, when we have a moment to stand back from, from all the, the noise of the day, which we weigh into every so often, and instead to, to think about ourselves and to think about how we're going to treating the people around us and treating the people that we work with and talking about people uh, when they're not around and, and all the, the ways that we, we lash out passively and sometimes more aggressively toward others. We can actually be true to ourselves and repent and face up to it. But know that in facing up to it, it's actually Jesus is the one who faced up for us. That he took our punishment and so that we can have mercy. And the promise is that as we do that, we're so covered by Jesus' grace and mercy for us that we can then rest in the assurance that we're in Him 
and the reality that Jesus didn't just stay dead, but instead rose again, defeating sin, Satan, and death, and bursting out of the tomb, means that he now still stands with the same power that he has always had. Power over his enemies, power to use his justice, his goodness, his rightness again. And so this story in the Old Testament is not something for us to to look down upon and go, oh gee, what's going on there? This story stands as a warning of the great cost of us remaining in our sin, the great cost of us continuing to reject God. That on this side of the cross, we can find mercy. But for those who continue to reject Him, justice still remains to come. One day, Jesus will return and He will finally and fully put away sin and those sinners who continue to reject Him. I mentioned before that the cry of the martyrs in eternity, How long, O Lord? Well, in that same passage, it tells us about the answer that's to come. Because in the verses following, it says in in Revelation 6, The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And so it's telling us, and I'm telling you today, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And those of us who hide ourselves in him, that will be a day to rejoice But those of us who continue to reject Him, that will be a day to hide. And so we can hide ourselves in Him or we can hide ourselves from Him. But justice and judgment is coming. And so take the offer of mercy. Let someone else die in your place. Let someone else experience the guts and the gore and the blood and the piercing and the crushing. Because He has He's already come 2,000 years ago, before you knew what was going on in the world. Before you'd ever had a moment to inspect your own heart. Jesus had already come because he'd already inspected it for you. He knew what was happening. And still, such is his great love for you, that he came to live your life, to die your death, and then to rise again in victory and power. Victory and power for you, if you're with him. But that victory and power will be a crisis moment if you are not with Him. And so come and put your trust in Him. If we judge ourselves now and submit to Jesus, Jesus' judgment will be a relief. We can find mercy in Him. But if we only ever judge others, and if we protect ourselves from ever coming face to face with the reality that we fall short, then Jesus' judgment will be that confronting crisis moment. And so let me encourage you to have the crisis moment right now and come and put your trust in Jesus. As this story has has led us here to see that, that we are the ones who deserve the piercing. We are the ones who deserve the crushing and yet Jesus has come for all of us. 
And so let's submit ourselves afresh to him today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the Lord, the Lord, a God slow to anger, a God who is full of mercy and grace, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And we thank you that you will by no means clear the guilty. And Lord, you have not just displayed that, but you have offered that to us, the guilty, to experience your mercy and your grace, to experience your steadfast love in spite of who we are and what we have done. And so, Lord, we we thank you for for stories like this in the Old Testament that that demonstrate that you're not a, a, a passive father, that you're not a detached divine being who set the world up in a certain way and then let evil loose. God, you're an engaged, active judge and you're going to come and bring your grace and bring your mercy as you have along with your justice. And so help us hide ourselves in you. Help us take up the offer that someone else, even you yourself in Jesus, can take our punishment for us. Someone else can bear that judgment in our place and face justice on our behalf so that we might go free. I pray for every soul in this room. I pray for every soul in Hughesdale and for every soul who is listening in online, Lord, that all of us would have a moment to take account of ourselves and come before you and that you might give us the gift of repentance and faith. Come and do something great in our hearts. Come and do something great in our church. Come and do something great in the world of making people like us free from the judgment we deserve so that we might live for you all the more passionate and committed to who you are. And so bless us now, we pray, and make our worship in this moment so sweet and so real. And may this reality of who you are be a comfort and a relief to us. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.